So let's open our Bibles together tonight to the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Our primary focus will be on the latter half of this chapter, beginning in verse 9. So we will begin reading there. Above beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget our labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of the president. Let us pray. Father, we ask you that the purposes that you have ordained for your word and these very words that we have read tonight from your scriptures, we pray that the purposes that you have ordained for giving them to us, Lord, would be accomplished. That you would help us in our hearing, that you would help us, Father, in our speaking and our thinking, that you would give us grace and mercy to lay hold once again of this hope founded in your very nature and accomplished in Christ. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. One of the primary applications of the book of Hebrews is to encourage God's people to perseverance, patience, faith, and hope. When we think of the book of Hebrews, sometimes we don't often think about that application right off. Most of the time, our minds probably go to the core message of this book, 
which is the preeminence of Christ in his person and in his work. Hebrews tells us and reveals to us that Christ is fully God and fully man. This is taught for us in the opening two chapters of this letter. He is preeminent above angels as far as a creator can be above a, cre a creature. The angels have not only been made by him, but he upholds, he upholds them by the word of his power. He is preeminent and far above all created things. He is preeminent to Moses and to the old covenant priests and to the sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament. As the God-man, he has fully and finally fulfilled all the types and the shadows of the Old Testament priestly system of sacrifices and days and ordinances. He did, by the one act of himself, he did what all of their labors and all of their sacrifices, all combined, could not do. That by his death and his resurrection, he put away sin. He redeemed sinners by the sacrifice of himself. We see this culmination of the person and work of person and work of Christ in a couple places that I just want to read by way of introduction, just to highlight the prominent theme of this book, because it is from this core, from this foundation of so great a salvation that God has given and God has provided, that all of the exhortations and applications and uh, promises that are given in the book of Hebrews, they flow from the foundation of Christ and what he has done. Look in chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. The writer says this, Also there were many priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, that is Christ, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That which the Old Testament priests could not do, Christ has done. That by his work as our great high priest, his death and his resurrection and his intercession for us before God the Father, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Now turn to chapter 10, where we see another similar passage of the finality of the work of Christ, the perfection of the person and the work of Christ. In chapter 10, beginning in verse 5, and we'll read down through verse 14, we read these words. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of this book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, 
Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. It is from this great salvation, the wonderful work of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, that's our great high priest. That again, as I said a moment ago, all of the promises, all of the exhortations, the warnings that are given in Hebrews, all of these flow from this great Savior and this great salvation. I thought about the book of Hebrews as a whole, and I only, and I tried to sum it up in my mind, and I, and I could only come up with one word that the book and the message of Hebrews is awesome. Now, I don't mean awesome in the modern American use of the word. I don't mean that the book of Hebrews is awesome in that manner. I mean that this book, this message, is awesome in its biblical meaning. Psalm 66, verses 1 through 7, says this. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing toward the sons of men. The psalmist is calling us to behold the person of God and his works. And he says that we should be filled with awe. When we consider his works among the sons of men. When I use that word about the message to the book of Hebrews, I mean it in the same way that as we, and many of you have read it, not all of you have read through the book of Hebrews, it is a book that should produce an awe in us. There are texts, even the text that we will look at tonight in Hebrews chapter 6, that should cause us to pause and to think, and to wonder at such a God as this who has saved us and who has given us such encouragement to persevere. The preacher and the writer to the book of Hebrews does encourage perseverance, patience, faith, and hope. But he doesn't exhort us and he doesn't encourage these things in a vacuum. There, there is a context 
in which these encouragements and these exhortations and these warnings take place. These first century Christians, primarily Jewish Christians, were in danger of drifting away and neglecting such a great salvation. They are warned of drifting in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. They were warned on three occasions in chapter 3 and 4. They were warned against hardening their hearts through unbelief and disobedience like the nation of Israel in the Old Testament as they did not believe God and they did not enter his Sabbath rest. They did not enter the promised land due to their hard hearts and their unbelieving hearts. The writer to the Hebrews warns these Christians of this, of this truth. He exhorts them not to harden their hearts, but to believe. They were also a people that we are told in chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, that they were not as mature in grace as they ought to have been. Look at chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, at the very end of chapter 5. We read this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. A solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And that's a part of the context, the Christian context, that this letter was written. In chapter 10, a very fearful warning is given to them in this letter concerning falling away. And yet at the end of that passage in chapter 10, verses 30, 30, uh, 26 through 39, at the very end of that passage, the writer of Hebrews encourages them by reminding them that the grace of God has been seen in, in them, that they have been servants, that they have suffered for Christ, that they have endured, and that they are not among those who will fall away unto perdition. But they are such as that as those who would believe to the saving of a soul. And we come to this passage in Hebrews chapter 6, and we have a very similar theme. From, from verse 4 through verse 8 of chapter 6, the writer to the book talks about the fearful danger of apostasy. of confessing Christ and of having some measure of spiritual, spiritual work to some degree, not saving work, but some degree of spiritual experience. And yet those who come to the place where then they deny Christ and outwardly just repudiate the gospel, the warning is that for them there is no place of repentance. The writer to Hebrews is not describing someone who is saved and then can lose their salvation. He is, he is describing someone who may say that they are a Christian, may even have some type of 
evidence or outward evidence that they are a Christian. They may even have a certain level of understanding of spiritual things. And yet because they do not endure and they do not persevere, but eventually they fall away and they reject the faith, the conclusion is not that they were saved and then they lost their salvation. The conclusion is that they never truly were saved to begin with. And so he warns them. He warns them of such experiences that do happen, that sadly do happen. But then we come to verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 9. Then we come to verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So he encourages them. He encourages them by the life and the fruit that he sees in them and what he has seen in them. He encourages them to persevere with all diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. He exhorts them not to be sluggish. Now the word for sluggish is lazy. He exhorts them not to be lazy, but to be diligent and to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he is exhorting them to perseverance. He is exhorting them to patience and he is exhorting them to faith. Persevering, patient faith. So the question is, upon what grounds, what encouraging grounds, does he provide for them and for us to persevere? And that's when we come to verse 13. I think there are three things that we can point out from these verses, beginning in verse 13, that are encouragements for all of us who know Christ to faithful perseverance. And the first encouragement is this. We have the example of Abraham. We have the example of Abraham to encourage us in our faith. What does he say in verse 13? For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he, that would be Abraham, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. This passage is a direct reference to Genesis chapter 22, and I want us to turn back there to Genesis 22, because it's important to remember this event and the flow 
of God's dealing and working with Abraham, the covenant and the promises that he made to Abraham, and the place where Abraham is in his faith when we come to Genesis 22. Beginning in verse 15, Abraham, Abraham has been obedient to the Lord. He has taken his only son Isaac to the mount that God had directed him to offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham was obedient and believing and trusting. And then we read in verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven, and he said, I myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants. As the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of your enemies, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. They rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. This event within the life of Abraham is in, within a series. It's within the narrative of his life. It's within an aspect of just God's dealing with him over time and his uh, understanding of God's purposes and the certainty and surety of God's grace and of his promises. The promise of Abraham being a blessing to all nations doesn't just pop up in Genesis 22. It begins in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 where God tells Abraham, and all in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In chapter 15 verses 1 through 6, the portion of that, God takes Abraham outside of the tent. And the verse says that he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able, and number them. So shall your descendants be. In chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, God reminds him again of the promise of, of his seed being a blessing to nations, and he speci is specifically fulfilled through Isaac, his son Isaac. So when we come to Hebrews chapter 6, and we look at that in comparison to Genesis 22, we find something that's very interesting. Because what did Abraham do in Genesis 17? Let's turn there for just a moment. Genesis chapter 17. Beginning in verse 15, we read these words. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her, and you also will have a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of, kings of people shall be from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And he said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? 
And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his descendants after him. And then he gives a blessing upon Ishmael and upon his generation. So what we have in Genesis chapter 17 is not a full and complete faith. It is a degree of faith, but it is a faith that is somewhat halting, I would say. He wasn't sure because the promise seemed so impossible because he was beyond the age of childbearing and Sarah was beyond the age of childbearing. So certainly, God, you, you mean Ishmael. You, why don't we use Ishmael? And in his heart, he laughed at the promise of God. And yet, by the time we get to Genesis 22, we find a mature faith. We find one that does not halt, one that is confident, one that obeys God even in the face of impossible circumstances. The promises of God that to Abraham that he would bless the nations through Isaac caused Abraham to believe and then to take his only son Isaac to the mount to sacrifice him out of obedience and out of faith in patience, in light of God's promises. And it is this act of faith that we are pointed to in Hebrews chapter 6. For God says that he swore by himself, speaking to Abraham, Surely blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So how does the patient endurance of Abraham encourage our faith? How does it encourage us to persevere in faith? Well, first, it encourages us because he believed God. He believed the promises of God in the face of what seemed to be experiential contradictions. He believed God and the promises of God. And though he asked God for Ishmael to be the heir, to be the heir of promise, and God corrected him and said, no, but from Sarah your seed shall come and Isaac will be his name. And God confirmed his promise to Abraham. Abraham continued to believe in the promises of God. Secondly, we not only see that he believed God, but that God's promises are not, in, are not insignificant, nor are they mutable, nor are they given to change. His promise to Abraham, both in Genesis 22 and repeated in Hebrews chapter 6, is a, is a wonderful broad promise in the language of the New Testament. 
with blessing I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply you. The repetition of words reminds us of the immensity and the greatness and the significance of God's promise to Abraham. There will be great blessings. I promise there will be great blessings to you and to your seed. There will not just be multiplications, but by multiplying, I will, I will still multiply and then ongoing multiply you. By multiplying, I will multiply you. This promise to Abraham and to his seed, that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. His promise is, a prom is the promise of Christ. That the fulfillment of this grand promise that through the seed of Abraham all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations. I thought for a moment Put, our, put ourselves in the shoes of Abraham when God took him and the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord took him outside and he said look up at the stars and count them if you can. Because as the stars which, he, which cannot be numbered Abraham could not look up and count them. There was there's just beyond uh, his capability to do that. So will your seed be. Did God keep his word? This most magnificent promise, this unchanging promise, did God fulfill his word to Abraham? Well, certainly. Certainly he did. God's promises are not insignificant or mutable. We are told in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 that we are given a glimpse into the very courts of heaven. And as we are given this vision, this picture through the Apostle John of the multitudes of people who are there dressed in white raiment before the throne of God, we are told that there is there a multitude from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And there were so many that they could not be numbered. So just take a minute, a moment and just consider what it would be like to think about from the time of Adam till the end of time and try to count all the believers. And the multitude upon multitudes of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We have every reason to be encouraged to persevere because of the faithful promises that God gave to Abraham and the fulfillment of those promises, the significant fulfillment of those promises through Jesus Christ to every nation on earth. God cannot lie. Abraham's faith was well grounded. But at this point in our text, there's a transition. 
that takes place in verses 16 to 18. Which brings us to our second and probably the most important encouragement that we have to persevere <coughs> in faith. And that is the wonder of God's condescension to us. See, there's a shift in focus. For verses 13, 14, and 15, our focus is upon Abraham, the promises that God made to Abraham, and how Abraham experienced and saw those promises fulfilled. And then our attention is immediately taken to the one who made the promise, the one who gave the promise. The wonder of God's condescension. Notice what the writer says in verses 16 through 18. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all disputes. Even men, as we make oaths with one another, we see some form of finality in the fact that not only do we give our word at times, but there are times when we give an oath. We sign a contract. We put our name down. And we make it binding. And we make our word binding through the, through the giving of an oath or the, of, or the making of a contract. So even men do this. And he goes on to say that for men, that this is an end of all disputes. Verse 17, thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Did you see what he's saying? He's pointing our attention to the veracity of God, the truthfulness of God, and to his, and to his condescension to our weakness and our frailty and our need. We would all say in agreement that it should be enough that God has said. God has promised. I think everyone here would say that should be sufficient. But that's not what happens here. There are two immutable things in which neither one of them can God lie. God cannot lie in his promise, but he does something beyond a promise. He swears an oath. Now think about that. The God of all creation, who sustains all things by the word of his power, has sent his Son. And in the humiliation of the Son of God, he became a man and he suffered as a man. 
was obedient to God in all of his ways without sin in all of his life, in his words, in his deeds, in his thoughts, and in his actions. And he died a death upon the cross in the place of sinners as the substitute to redeem us, to bear the judgment that we deserve. He was buried and he was raised from the dead. And he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where he now reigns as our great high priest, interceding for us, praying for us. That he has pled the very merits of his life, the very merits of his death, of his suffering, of his entering into the veil for us behind the veil, into the very heavens itself, into the presence of God on our behalf. And God has said to Abraham, I will do this. I will, in your seed, all the earth, all the nations will be blessed in your seed. And that seed is Christ. We know from Galatians that that seed is Christ. God promised and God fulfilled. Redemption was accomplished. Salvation was completed. Christ has saved. He has redeemed sinners. He has fulfilled the promises of God. And yet this same only true and living God comes again to us. And he says, I've not only promised, but by my very name, I swear, I take an oath, I bind myself to this promise. I will keep my word. You can believe my promise. That amazes me. We need to realize, if you're here tonight, and you have not been reconciled to God, that God has given His Son to accomplish all a sinner needs for salvation, to our, for our forgiveness and for our redemption, and to bring us into the presence of God without fear and trembling as children by his death, burial, and resurrection. And he has taken an oath that it is certain and sure. And if you're here tonight and you have not believed in Christ but repented from your sins, you have to step over that oath. You have to say in your mind and in your heart, that's not true. Or that's not enough. God must do more. Or, I just don't want it. God is alive. And your path to hell would have to step over the very promise and oath of God that he offers in Christ.
I don't keep all my promises. I think I've maintained most of the contracts that I've signed. But there are times when I've said to my children, I promise I'll do that. And for some reason I don't I end up not doing it. But the God of heaven and earth. Determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, that's you and me, the immutability of his counsel to let us know more clearly, other than just making a promise, he confirmed that promise for you and for me with an oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie. For what purpose? For what purpose? To make himself more glorious? No, because he can be no more glorious than he is. To make himself more trustworthy? No, because he is absolutely trustworthy in all that he does and says. He is holy and perfect and without blemish. But we are told why he took this oath. That we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. He took that oath for you. So that we, when we grow weary and our faith stumbles, we wonder if we're going to persevere to the end. He comes to us and says, I have consolation for you. I promise by my very name. In other words, if I break this oath, may I be forever banished. He has no one greater upon which to swear than himself. And he puts his very being on the line. And he says, I take an oath for your confirmation that there is a refuge. Continue to faithfully persevere. I have saved you. I will keep you. Which brings us to the last point. That this oath of confirmation brings certain hope. Not wavering hope. Not I hope that this might happen. But a sure and steadfast hope. Verse 19 and 20. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Christ has entered behind the veil, 
and to very, into the very throne room of God, into the heavens themselves. As our forerunner, he has gone before us, that we may come after him. As our high priest forever, in the presence of God. And this hope is an anchor of the soul. Sure and steadfast. For it is founded in the very nature of God who humbled himself to become a man and to die a certain death to forgive our sins not like the Old Testament could, could not do or complete, but he did once for all to bring us nigh to God. That's encouraging to persevere in this breath of life, this blink of an eye, the storms troubles, difficulties in sanctification and in faith, looking at things and wondering what's going to happen. Will I make it through these things? Will I persevere? Will I continue faithful to Christ no matter what? Here is every hope, every encouragement, to continue to persevere and to have strong consolation in the God of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we simply ask tonight that you would bless your word. You give us encouragement. I pray as you intended these words to be. I ask in Jesus' name.